Would you find the book of Ruth in your Bibles, please? Book of Ruth. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. Use your table of contents if you need to. And when you find Ruth chapter 1, would you stand with me, please? And I'm going to read this chapter that we're going to begin this morning. Ruth chapter 1. You follow along, please. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. Now, they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters. It grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they left it, lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and where there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? So she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned. 
and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, we are so grateful to be able to come to you in prayer, to be able to read your word and study it together. And Lord, we ask that the characters in this story would come alive to us, but more importantly, that you would appear as the one true living God as we study this story. As we begin today and meet these characters and understand this setting, Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher? Holy Spirit, would you anoint me and empower me to teach your word accurately and boldly this morning? That exactly what you want us to see in this passage is what would come through. Exactly what you want us to hear from this passage is what would come through and that you would give us ears to hear, Lord. I ask for your help for me and for all of us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Just a little bit of introduction about this book of Ruth. We don't know who wrote it. Tradition tells us Samuel wrote it. That may or may not be correct. It's plausible. We don't know when it was written. Around 1000 BC. Well, how do you know that? Because it references David. And David was known that he would be king or that he was already king. And yet there's no reference to Solomon. So we believe it was probably written down from the verbal tradition that had been passed down during the time of David's reign or just before it. And there are also some other references that tell us it wasn't written down right away because there are customs that are explained that weren't in common use any longer. And we'll, we'll talk about some of those as we go. So the events of this book occurred during the period of the Judges and were written down probably around the time of the reign of David. Now you may be aware, but this work, even though it's short, it's only four chapters, the way we have it in our English Bible, it's a short work, a short story, if you will, and yet it's considered by many secular and biblical scholars to be a literary classic. Someone said that what Venus is to statues and the Mona Lisa to paintings, the book of Ruth is to literature. It's a wonderful story, beautifully crafted, ultimately by the Holy Spirit, and I enjoy reading it. I've enjoyed studying it. I hope you will enjoy our time together. Main characters, you're probably aware of who they are, but Today we'll meet Naomi in verse 2 and Ruth in verse 4. And then next time we will meet Boaz at the beginning of chapter 2. Those are the three main characters in this book. I've studied it over the past weeks and months. And I believe these are the themes of each chapter. 1, 2, 3, 4. Returning, that is our theme for today. The next week, reaping or gleaning. Number three for the third chapter is redemption, and then the fourth one is rest. And that's not inspired. That's the product of my study, and I invite you as you study it, if you see different themes or a different theme for the chapter, that's fine. But this is the, the framework that I am working from. There are some key words and ideas that we really need to grasp, and I will explain them as we go. But redemption is very important. It is a key word in this book. 
And it appears 20 times in these four chapters. I believe there are 85 verses total. So that's a lot. And then the idea of return. All over this first chapter. I think it's 12 times in this chapter, 15 times in the book. So return, returning. And then an important concept for the entire Bible and the Old Testament is the idea of kindness or loving loyalty. That Hebrew word is going to appear three times in our book of Ruth. And then last is not a word that you're going to find in the Hebrew or in our English Bibles. It's, it's the word providence. It means that God is superintending. He is working, in this case, much behind the scenes. But he is the one orchestrating, bringing all of these events together, causing all of it to happen just the way he wants to, to work out his perfect plan, his sovereignty. Now, what about our main idea for today? Because there's a lot here. I'm going to do my best to cover it well. But one simple thought that I want you to remember from today is that when you've gone astray, come back. If you're trying to follow directions, your GPS or written down directions, and you make a wrong turn, what do you need to do? You need to get back on the path so that you're going the right way. You need to make a, re, a, a U-turn in order to return. Another way to say that is when you find yourself in the wrong place, regardless of how you got there, turn around and go back. So with that introductory material behind us, let's go back to verse 1 now and study verse by verse through this first chapter. Verse 1 says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. That introduction, that first phrase, now it came to pass, that would be similar to what once upon a time. It would be a common phrase saying, these events happened. This isn't just based on a true story the way so many movies are. This is a true story. This is inspired historical drama for us. And it's not made up. It's real events, real people, real description. When did it happen? When the judges ruled? Well, what does that mean? That means before there was a king in Israel. As a matter of fact, you may need to turn back a page in your Bible or scroll up or or whatever you need to do. But the last verse of Judges, Judges 21-25, is a repeat of some other places in the book of Judges, and it goes like this. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. How do you think that worked for them? Not well at all. It's anarchy. That's everybody doing whatever seems right to me. And it was a very dark time. Very dark period in Israel's history. And out of that backdrop of darkness, we have the gleaming jewel of this beautiful love story. This story of faithfulness, of God and of people to each other. So it happened when the judges ruled. We don't know exactly when, but during the time that the judges ruled, about a 300 year period of Israel's history, when there was a famine in the land. Well, that's an added detail, not just during that 300 years, but during a famine during that 300 years. Often, as you look at the Old Testament, famine came as a judgment of God, a correction to his people when they had gone astray. It's not specifically stated that that's why this famine came, but often that was the case. Now, when I talk about the promised land, that's a big deal as you read the Old Testament from Genesis on, and God described this land that he was going to provide for his people as a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. 
What did that mean? It meant it was a good land. It had plentiful food. How? It was different from Egypt, God told them. In Egypt, they had the Nile River, and basically you have desert in a lot of Egypt, and then right along the Delta area, where it fans out there in the northern part of Egypt, but anywhere along the Nile, it's well watered, and they have abundance. It's beautiful. He says, I'm not going to give you a land that's like Egypt. I'm going to give you a different kind of land, one that is dependent on rain. Why did he do that? This land flowing with milk and honey, this abundant land, why would he do that? To make sure they knew that they were dependent on him. It wouldn't be the same as Egypt. Instead, I will send the rains. As you obey me, I will bless you. I will send the rains at the different times of year that will allow the crops to grow and for you to have abundance. But that's not what was going on here. There was a famine in the land. See, God knows how to get his people's attention. That was one way he got his people's attention in, in Old Testament times. During the period of Judges, there was a famine. There was a lack of food. We've gotten just a glimpse of what it feels like to have shortages in the supply chain and in the grocery stores and that kind of thing. This is much more than that. This is, there's nothing to eat. And it may be that God has sent or is sending some sort of lack in your life. He, he got their attention because there was a lack of food, a famine. But he could send a lack of money, a lack of health, or a lack of food, a lack of anything that we normally take for granted and depend on. All of a sudden, it's not there. All of a sudden, there's a shortage. All of a sudden, we don't believe we have enough. And now he has our attention. There are times that God works that way so that we will listen to him. Continuing verse 1, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. You may already know this, but Bethlehem means house of bread. So there's a little bit of irony right there. They're in Bethlehem, the house of bread, and there's a famine in the land. It says Bethlehem, Judah. Judah, you may recall, means praise. And it's mentioned here to specify which Bethlehem, because there was also a Bethlehem up in the north in Zebulun. And this certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab. He was going temporarily. He was going not to settle down and live there forever, but just for a time. Moab. It's important for us to know a little bit about Moab. Here's a map for you. This is from the ESV Study Bible. And you can see, here's Moab. Here is Bethlehem. So when they traveled, they would have left Bethlehem and gone up north around the Dead Sea, crossed the Jordan River, and back down into Moab. From what I understand, on a clear day from Bethlehem, you could see across the Dead Sea to Moab. That's hill country. Bethlehem in Judah is hill country. So they would have been able to see it. Perhaps it looked like things are going really well. There's not a famine in Moab right now. Let's go there. Why did God put them in a land that was dependent on rainfall? So they would know they were dependent on him. And I don't know really what was going through Elimelech's mind, let alone the rest of the family. I don't claim to. But it would seem that God was going to provide for them in the promised land, and yet they decided we're going to go to Moab because we think it's going to go better for us there. So what about Moab? Where did Moab come from? 
Moab was one of the children of Lot. You may remember the story, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot and his wife and his two daughters were leaving together, and Lot's wife turned back and became a pillar of salt, so now he's just with his two daughters, and they're living in a cave. And his daughters decide there's no one to be a husband to us. Nobody's going to marry us. We're not going to have any children to continue our father's name. Here, I know what we'll do. Let's get our father drunk, so drunk he won't know what's going on, and each of us is going to sleep with him, and then we'll have children. So it's an incestuous relationship. It's a terrible story from the book of Genesis. And that's where Moab came from. The elder daughter slept with her father, had a son, Moab. Second daughter did the same thing the next night, had a son named Ben-Ami, became the Ammonite people. So that's where this group of people came from. And they were often the enemies of God's people. They often gave a very hard time, and there was hostility between those two nations. Specifically, when God's people came out from the Exodus, came out of Egypt, they wanted to pass through on their way into the Promised Land. And Moab said, no way. Stay out of our land. You can't have our water. You can't do any. Just stay out. And God actually pronounced a type of curse on the people of Moab. So they were enemies. Elimelech is going to take his family into enemy territory because he thinks he can provide for them better there than he can in the promised land. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech. I've already been talking about him, but that's where we learn his name. The name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. So here's the family. We have Elimelech married to Naomi, and the sons, and I think really if I could pronounce them right in Hebrew, it would be more like Machon and Chilion. But we're just going to call them Malon and Chilion because they're not really going to be in the story very long anyway. Elimelech, his name. Back then, they often named children to uh, show a significant event or perhaps describe what the child looked like. So Elimelech means, my God is king. What a wonderful name. I'm not sure he's living up to his name at this point, but that's what his name means. My God is king. Naomi means pleasant or my delight. Pleasant. What a nice name. Their children's names are not quite so pleasant. Uh, Milan means sick or puny, and Chilion means pining, or I even saw one translation of crybaby. So there are various jokes that People make about these two sons, don't know how they got those names or why they had those names, but basically what this comes down to, as one person put it, is that Naomi and Elimelech named their children sick and tired. Sick and tired. Those are the names of their kids. And it says they remained there. They went to dwell back in verse 1, and they remained there, verse 2. Now, various pastors, Bible commentators, at this point, a lot of them will say, Elimelech was wrong, Elimelech was in sin, he never should have taken his family away. And they may be right. But across the board, it seems that a lot of people are pretty hard on Elimelech. And the fact is, we don't know what he was thinking or why he did what he did. 
there wasn't a specific command that he couldn't leave the promised land. There was sort of an assumption, I think, that this is the land I'm giving you. Go there, stay there. How much of the Bible did they have? If they had any access to the scriptures at all, it would have been the Pentateuch, the first five books. That's all they had. So I don't know what caused him to make the decision he did to lead his family away from the promised land and into enemy territory. But since I don't know what was going on there, I will take a moment and point out from later in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, what principles, what application do we have when we need to make a decision, when we need wisdom, when, when something is, is changing in our lives. So here's the basic principle I would offer you, what we need to remember. When you're in a trial and you need wisdom, seek the Lord. Where does that come from? James 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. What are you supposed to do if you need wisdom? Ask God. What about when you're considering a move or some other change? What should you do? You should seek the Lord. How so? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You may have memorized this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. What should you do? In your daily life, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. What about when you're making plans? You're thinking down the road, what do I need to do for myself, for my family? What should you do when you're making plans? You should seek the Lord. James, in the New Testament, chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, I need to acknowledge God when I need wisdom, when I'm making plans, when I'm anticipating a change or a move. Did Elimelech seek the Lord in any of these things? Not that we're told. I don't know. People generally do the best they can with the information that they have. So I'd love to give him the benefit of the doubt. We don't know. It, it seems that he's in reactionary mode rather than, God, is this what you want us to do? Or that he got a vision in the night, an angel came in, in a dream and told him, take your family there. You don't see any of that going on. At least it's not recorded in scripture. Now this may come as a surprise to you. Verse three says, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And there are some who say, well, that was the chastening of the Lord on him. It could be, but we don't know because the text doesn't tell us that. Continuing verse three, and she, that is Naomi, was left and her two sons. Now they, the two sons, took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth and they dwelt there about 10 years. So we have originally Elimelech and Naomi and their sons, Malon and Chilion, and Elimelech has died. Now Naomi is left with her two sons and her two sons get married. Milan marries Ruth. Chilion marries Orpah. Now I have a question for you. Was there a specific command in the scriptures about not marrying 
someone from Moab? The answer is no. Some of you may be thinking, but isn't there, isn't there a command that they aren't supposed to marry outside the tribes of Israel? There are some specific prohibitions against marrying anyone who was a Philistine, anyone who was a Canaanite, someone who dwelt in the promised land and were worshiping other gods. But there wasn't a specific command against marrying Moabite women. But just in general, were they supposed to marry into other groups? No. Think for a moment of Solomon, all the different nationalities that he married into, the wives that he had, and what did they do? They led his heart astray. He began to worship false gods. And that's what, there were really two things in that. It, it wasn't a, a nationalism that God was commanding or some sort of racism that he was commanding, but rather there were two things going on. One is that the seed that was promised clear back in Genesis chapter 3, that the seed needed to have a traceable line through the generations. And, and God had a specific way that was intended to work. And that was going to be through a descendant of Abraham. So that had to be traceable in order to fulfill the prophecies. And then that same reason, that they wouldn't have their hearts drawn away by intermarriage. What's our principle today? God has given us very specific instructions in the New Testament regarding whom we should marry, and who is that? A believer. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That is not specific to marriage, but it applies to marriage. Broaden it, that would be your business practices, that would be any close relationship. We should not be yoked together with unbelievers. We need to be, if we're going to be in a yoke, think of the picture there, have to be going the same speed in the same direction or it's not going to work. And that's the picture of life and specifically marriage. It applies that way. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about marrying only in the Lord. What does that mean? It means pray about it, but as long as you're marrying another believer, go ahead, get married. Now, what do these names mean? Orpah means gazelle or deer, that type of animal. Ruth means friendship. And as we get to the end of verse 4, it says, and they dwelt there 10 years. So they went to dwell temporarily in verse 1. They remained, verse 2, and now 10 years have gone by. By the time we get to verse 4, they remained there. It didn't go according to their plan. Verse 5 says, then both Malon and Chilion also died, so the women survived her two sons and her husband. To be a childless widow was very precarious in that day and age. Security, safety, provision in that society, in that culture, very much came through being married. And if you didn't have a husband, if you were a widow, then your children, specifically your male children, would carry on the family name and also care for their mother. And now Naomi has none of that. <laughs> Furthermore, her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, had none of that. They had no children, could have been married as long as 10 years, had no children, and now they too are widows. So three men have died. We do not have a specific reason given for why these 
three men died. There are other places in the Bible that says this person did this and God struck him dead. That's not what we have here. We don't know. But where are we in the story? So far, we've witnessed a famine, a funeral, two weddings, and two more funerals. For the first time, for the first time in the book, we're about to read some good news when we get to verse 6. What was the main point? What do I want you to remember from today? I want you to remember that when you've gone astray, come back. When you're on the wrong path, when you're in the wrong destination, come back, return. Read verse 6 with me. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. She heard that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Naomi gets word, we don't know how, but word, word spread that God had sent rain, if that was the cause of the famine, or taking care of his people in war, if that was the cause of the famine, or the pestilence, or whatever it might have been that caused the famine, God had taken care of it. He had blessed his people. He was providing for them. See, God knew how to get Elimelech and Naomi's attention. And now Naomi is by herself with her two daughters-in-law, and she hears good news. What prompted her to listen? The trials that she had faced. John Corson said it this way. Please keep this in mind. This story is not to show God punishing Naomi for wandering off into Moab. Her loss was not punitive, it was corrective. Its purpose was to get her back on track, back to Bethlehem. In your life and mine, when there's a loss, it's not for punishment. Why? Because the punishment for our sin was already poured out on Jesus on the cross. He died in our place. So any, any hardship in our life is not to punish us for our sins. There are consequences for sins. I realize that. We live in a fallen world. But please don't think if things aren't going well in your life right now, God's punishing me. He's mad at me. That's not it. Corson went on to say, if you're in a place of loss, materially or internally or vocationally or relationally, know this. You're experiencing loss not because God is mad at you. He's not angry with you. He's not disappointed in you. But he wants to speak to you. He wants your attention. He knows that sometimes the only time we'll listen is when we're at a place of loss where we can do nothing else. Ever been there? I can remember... My grandmother passed away the day I was flying out on my first overseas mission trip. I was in college, and I was headed to Lithuania. It's the first time I've ever been out of the country, first time I've ever been away from home or my family for that long. It was a five-and-a-half-week trip. And my grandmother, we got word in the airport down in Atlanta that two-and-a-half hours away, she had been discovered dead, had died in her sleep that night unexpectedly. And we got to Lithuania. I, I prayed through it. My, my parents, other counselors said, you should go. And I went. And I can remember being alone by myself in the hallway of the apartment where we were staying and crying and praying and saying, God, I don't know what else to do. I am weak. You've said that you're strong in my weakness. Please use me. Please use our team that people would be saved and discipled as a result of our being here. And God answered that prayer. But he very much had me in a weak place where all I could do was listen. 
There's a statement about the Lord here. The Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. This is the first mention of God in the book of Ruth. And what's he doing here? He's providing for his people. Isn't that what he does so much of the time? We don't have the name Jehovah Jireh here, but he is providing for his people. God, my provider. Verse seven. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was, Moab, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. She went out from where she was. They went on the way to return. Return is a key word in the book of Ruth. And that is the Hebrew word. It's fun to say. It's not going to be on the test. You don't have to remember it if you don't want to, but shub is, the, is this Hebrew word, shub. It means to return, to turn back, and has implications for us spiritually, I believe, to repent. Well, what's repentance, Bob? It's to change your mind, to have a change of mind, a change of heart that results in a change of action. It's when you've made a wrong turn and your GPS is saying, make a U-turn, make a U-turn. That's the idea. In the story of the prodigal son, he was in the pig pen. He was as low as he could possibly be. And what happened? He came to himself. And he said, I will rise and go to my father. And he has his whole speech prepared and he has a plan to go back. But he came to himself and something happened. I don't know because it doesn't give us a lot of details. Something happened in Naomi's heart in her life. She said, okay, I'm going to return. I've heard that God has provided for his people. I'm going back. When you've gone astray, come back. When you find yourself in the wrong place, regardless of how you got there, Naomi might not have had a, a lot of say in the departure from Bethlehem to Moab in the first place, but she's going back. This idea of reversing your direction, of repenting. Here's a, a great verse from Isaiah 55, verse 7. It says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's our word, return, shub. To go back, to come back. Verse 8, And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. What's Naomi doing here? Does she not want them to come with her? Well, I don't think that's it. She's trying to be gracious because I mentioned a few minutes ago that in that culture, to be a widow with no children is a very helpless, hopeless situation. And she is trying to be gracious to them and say, go back. I'd like for you to have your own families. There's a better chance of that if you stay here. If you stay here in your home country, where you're from, go back with your family, go back to your parents' house, and may the Lord grant you a family of your own with a second husband. That, that's kind of what she's doing. She's being selfless. She's encouraging them to return because in her thinking, at least, that's in their best interest. So return each to his her mother's house, and there are a couple of prayers here, if you will. The Lord deal kindly with you. And that is another important word. I mentioned that loyalty, kindness was here. This is the Hebrew word. You may be familiar with this one. Hesed. Hesed. Loyal, steadfast, or faithful love. Kindness. We're going to see this word two other times in the book. And this is Naomi praying that 
the Lord, Yahweh, the true God, the covenant name of God, that he would show his faithful, covenant-keeping love to these girls. She goes on, the Lord grant you, I pray that the Lord would grant you that you might find rest in a home of your own with, with a second husband. Verse 9 continues, so she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. Both of them say, we're going anyway. So she graciously, kindly encourages them to return to their homes, to remarry. But they say, no, we're going with you. Verse 11, she tries again. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back. By the way, these turn backs are the same word as return. They're shub. Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were full grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So a second time, she's making this argument, return, go back. This is probably a reference to the leverite, leverite marriage. We'll talk about that more, that an unmarried brother of the husband who died would marry the widow in order to perpetuate the family for the inheritance. We'll talk more about that in, in the weeks to come as we get further into the book. But she's saying, I'm not going to have any more sons. And even if I had a son tonight, you're not going to wait for him. Go back. Go back. Now, there's an interesting statement here. She's had these two prayers, if you will. The Lord deal kindly with you. The Lord grant that you may find rest. But this is the first thing she said about the Lord. What does she say? This is in the end of verse 13. It grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The Lord has acted against me. That is Naomi's view of God at this point. She's a firm believer in God. She is still a believer. She's going back because she believes the Lord has provided bread for his people. Remember? She's a believer. But she seems to have a skewed view of God. Many people look at this and, and the rest of the chapter and say, she's grieving. She is probably depressed. She may be bitter. All these things. Her view of God is off by a little bit right? That the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She sees herself as afflicted by God, but she still has faith. That's important. Verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. They're weeping. They're widows. This is an emotional scene saying goodbye, either to your people or to your mother-in-law. This is a goodbye no matter what. And they're weeping again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. She's going back. That's the decision she's made. After two arguments from Naomi, she decides, all right, I'm going. I'm going back. But Ruth clung to Naomi. She held her and wouldn't let her go. This is showing her devotion, her loyalty. This is the same word, it's used a lot actually in the Old Testament, but this is the same word that's used clear back in Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to, that's the New King James, be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. To cleave, to hang on to, to hug. So Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. Ruth is hugging, clinging, hanging on to. 
This is a closeness. Other ways that be joined to can be translated. Be united with, cleave to, hold fast to, bond with. This is a close human relationship. She is committed. This action of clinging to her mother-in-law and the speech that follows that we'll look at in just a minute, they reveal Ruth as the main character of this book. This book very easily could have been named for an Israelite. It could have been named the book of Naomi. It could have been named the book of Boaz. It could have been named the lineage of David, the ancestors of David. It could have been any of those things, but it is the book of Ruth named for a woman. It is the book of Ruth named for a Gentile an idolater, an enemy of God's people. That's the name of the book. Why? Because of God's grace? Because of what we see right here in this spot in chapter one. Where are we in that family tree? We have Naomi and Ruth because Orpah has gone back. But Naomi's not finished. She's gonna plead She pleaded a third time, and this is Ruth's response. Verses 15 and 16 give us that last interchange. Naomi says, verse 15, and she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back, Shub, to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Go back. That's what your sister-in-law did. What would it mean to return to her gods? Honestly, after studying this chapter a good bit, I don't understand why Naomi would tell her to go back to her gods. I understand why she would go back to her people. It's going to go a lot easier for you that way. I don't know if she explained this to them or not, but for them to come to the promised land, to Israel, there's no guarantee that another person in Bethlehem, Judah, another Israelite is going to marry them. Odds are pretty low. They have much better chances from human perspective going back where they came from. But why go to their gods? Who would that be? Chemosh was the national god of Moab. And you know how they worshipped him, among other things? Child sacrifice. Human sacrifice. I don't know what Naomi was thinking. The Bible Knowledge Commentary is very gracious to her on this and says, Naomi did not make it easy for Ruth to come to faith in the God of Israel. True statement. I don't know what she was thinking. But regardless of what she was thinking, that third argument didn't work. What we have next is considered one of the most beautiful expressions of commitment in all of world literature, period. It is inspired, it's in the Bible. But people unsaved and saved love this paragraph. Verse 16, but Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Beautiful speech. This could be its own sermon. I'm going to try to behave myself here, but there's a lot we could say. Within that paragraph, she answers all three of Naomi's arguments. Return, go back because of this, because that. No. Don't ask me to leave you. Or turn back from following you. Because wherever you go, I'm going to go. Wherever you stay, I'm going to stay. Furthermore, wherever you die, I'm going to die. And there will I be buried. And she puts a little oath on the end of it. The Lord, the true God, Jehovah, the one you worship, Naomi. 
the true God, do bad things to me if anything but death separates us. So if you were to lay it out, there, there's a Hebrew form of poetry, a chiasm, a, a logic structure. And the first statement and the last statement go together, and the second and the second to last go together, and then you have the center. And this is the big, big significant part of it. And that is the statement, your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. She is returning. She is shubing. She is repenting. She is turning her back on her people and the false gods, and she is making her claim. I am going to be part of your people, and I am going to worship your God. Ruth is a believer in the true God. Many people have rightly described this as her moment of conversion. She is staking her claim in the God of Israel, Jehovah. Your God will be my God. Verse 18, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Naomi sees that her mind is made up, so she stops trying to argue with her. It, it sounds a little bad in English that she gives her the silent treatment. That's probably not the case, but she's not going to try to persuade her anymore. Three arguments, and Ruth puts her foot down in a good way. Verse 19, now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. That would have been 60, 75 miles perhaps, depending on the, the route that they took. It would have taken them a week, maybe as many as 10 days. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them and the women said, is this Naomi? All the city, it would have been mostly the women, as we see there, because most of the men were out harvesting, as we'll find out. So the women say, is this Naomi? Or one translation has, can this be Naomi? It suggests that we remembered her, they recognized her, but she looks different. Have you ever come across somebody who you went to high school with or somebody you knew 10, 15, 20 years ago, in this case, 10 years ago, and the person's changed a lot. The person's aged a lot. Think of what Naomi had been through, the loss of her husband, two sons, living in a foreign land for 10 years. Don't know what it was, but she was visually changed, something observable, and apparently for the worse. So now the, the grief, the depression, the bitterness that we got a glimpse of earlier comes pouring out of her. Verse 20, but she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Now, there are multiple names of God referenced there. We have the Almighty, Shaddai, the Lord, Jehovah, the Almighty, the Lord, going back and forth. And then she has names for herself, doesn't she? Don't call me Naomi. What does Naomi mean? Do you remember? Pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. What does Mara mean? Bitter. Where does that come from? You can go back and read it on your own. Exodus 15, 23 to 27. The children of Israel had just crossed the Red Sea. And the first stop, after three days, I believe it is, they have no water to drink. And they come to a spring, and it's bitter water. It's not drinkable water. That's what Mara means, bitter. 
And what did God do about it? I wish she had thought through the story from which she's pulling her name. Call me Mara, call me bitter. What did God do? He provided. He said, throw that branch or that tree into the water and it will be sweet. And it was. God provided for his people. And here she is bitter. She has experienced bitter trials. No question. Grief is real. Sadness is real. Depression is real. But God provides for his people. And he's going to provide for her. She just doesn't know it yet. She goes on and says, I went out full and I came back empty. What is she talking about? Why did she leave? She left because of a famine in the house of bread, Bethlehem. So what could she be talking about? Maybe, giving her the benefit of the doubt, maybe she means I went out with my entire family, my three men, and I'm coming back with nobody. She's coming back with nobody? She's empty? Who's standing there with her? Who just made a huge commitment to, I'm with you till death. I could go back to my family. I could probably have a family of my own. But I'm forsaking all of that. I am with you till death do us part. A commitment that rather than have her own family, I'm going to take care of my mother-in-law. That's Ruth. She makes no reference to Ruth. The, the other women of Bethlehem seem to make no reference to Ruth. I don't know why. I would like to make a running list, that's what I'm hoping to do, of who God is and what he's done in this book of Ruth. And I'd like to say that if you feel empty today, I'd like you to remember something. God is the God of the full and God is the God of the empty. When things are going beautifully well, not a cloud in the sky, everything's great, your cup is running over, God is still God. And he's still good. And when everything has fallen apart, when you have lost that loved one, or you've lost multiple loved ones, and it feels like you are oppressed, and everything is going poorly, and you feel empty, and there's nothing left, God is still God, and God is still good. God is the God of the full and the God of the empty. She believes God has afflicted her, and, and to an extent, we would agree. Some people said that Naomi's experience was not unlike Job's, but her perspective is more like Job's wife. Verse 22, let's finish this up. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Quickly, I'm pointing out Ruth the Moabitess. We'll see that phrase in chapter 2 and again several times in the book. Emphasizing that she's a Gentile. She's not by birth, by blood, one of God's people. But she's one of God's people. We're going to see that. They get there at the barley harvest. I didn't know off the top of my head when barley harvest was. The fact is that the climate is mild enough in that part of the world that they plant barley in the fall and they harvest it in the spring. What is barley? What's the significance of that? Well, it was primarily fed to livestock, but it was also eaten by the poor. Hence, 
the reference to barley. And we're going to see them going into the field next time to glean barley. So what time of year was it? This is cool. God worked this out. I didn't plan it this way. But it was the end of April. That's the same time of year we're going to be studying this book is when it took place on the calendar. This chapter begins with famine, but ends with barley harvest. And that last verse there starts the transition. It changes the direction, the trajectory, so that we're headed toward hope. Naomi chose to move in the right direction, to come back. And now we're seeing that her circumstances are beginning to turn, thanks to God's providence. As we're going to see in the rest of this book, God is going to knock her sandals off with blessing. There is a lot of great stuff in store for her, but she doesn't know it yet. And we'll study it in the weeks to come. But the idea that I want you to remember from today is when you've gone astray, come back. When you find yourself in the wrong place, regardless of how you got there, come back. Turn around and come back. One of the commentaries that I've read this week said this come home come home to the God who made you and loves you and is the only one who can fill your emptiness and meet your deepest need come back empty come back with only small expectations if that's all you have come back bitter if you must but come back you may have been gone 10 years as Naomi was that's too long so is five years. So is one year. So is one day. Because we were made for God in our true home, our only place of true wholeness. I would say the only place we will find satisfaction is with him. So is there someone here in the room or someone watching or listening? You've never come to God? Never the first time. He is waiting with open arms to receive you. But you don't know what I've done. I don't care what you've done. He knows what you've done. And he sent his son Jesus to die for your sin. And he says, come on, come to me. Would you do that today? Would you call on him to be your savior? Those of you who've done that, your believers, will you trust the God of the empty and the full today? Will you seek him in your trials? Will you seek him in your grief? Will you seek him in your pain? Will you seek his will in decisions and changes? Will you ask him for wisdom? Will you come back to him? Would you pray with me? Our Lord and God, you are good. When we have our best days and Sense your blessing on us, you are good. And when we believe you are distant, when we don't sense you with us or near us, you're still there. You're still good. May we accept that. Lord, if there's someone who has never come to you for salvation. May today be the day. If there is someone who needs to come back to you, maybe that person has 
been living in sin. Give grace to repent, to return, to come back. Maybe that person feels afflicted by you. Lord, may that person come back. May that person trust in you. Increase our faith, Lord. May we draw near to you knowing that you will draw near to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.